Chapter 27 of the Psychology of Religion by Edwin Diller Starbuck. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 27 Adult Life, Motives, and Purposes. The question was asked, What would you now be and do if you realized all your ideals of the higher life? The replies were full and apparently given with the greatest frankness. In the organization of the motives and purposes which inspire mature persons, we may hope to arrive at the most accurate picture, provided the respondents have been both honest and frank, of the trend of life from childhood toward maturity, and of the point or points toward which it is moving. In bringing the ideals together, they fall into several more or less distinct headings. These in turn seem to show in one way or another three great tendencies in growth. In the first place, there are those motives and purposes which have, for their end, the perfection and enlargement of the individual life, and which express the growth instincts that make for self-enlargement. Secondly, there are those motives, the purpose of which is to curb the individual life, and which express the tendency to hold in check the egoistic impulses that bring the individual out of harmony with social life. In the third place, there are the purposes that center in the life outside of the self. They are the social and altruistic impulses, and grow out of the recognition of the fact that the self is only a small part of the larger whole and that the individual will must be given up to subserve the interest of the organism of which it is a part. The present chapter will be devoted to a simple elucidation of those three classes of motives, the relationship they sustain among themselves, and their significance in religious development. The egoistic impulses show themselves in several different ways. The most prominent of these is the ideal of self-perfection, which seems to center in the biological instinct of realization of the fullest life. The way this shows itself is tersely illustrated in the following quotations. Female, where once I said, I want to be good, I now say, I want to develop, to improve, to grow strong. Female, my one motive is to grow, not especially spiritually, but every way. Female, I would live an honest, upright, beautiful, sincere life. Male, I would build up a pure and unselfish character. Male, I would lead such an open life that everybody would understand it and it would be so pure and true that all who saw it would want to be like it. The central thing in these impulses is that an ideal has been established, and that growth toward it has become an end in itself. A motive that is closely akin to the last is self-expression. Back of it is pleasure and activity. One gets the best glimpse of this impulse in the uncouth and naive form in which some of the young girls express it. One says, my ideal is to be a woman of thirty, beautiful in form and feature, to have wonderful power with my voice, to be very rich, and use all my wealth for doing good. Another says, if I realize my highest ideal, I would write a book like Thomas A. Kempis or Helen Hunt's Ramona. Among the older persons, this same impulse is found, but in a more refined form, and usually mingled with other motives. One man says, I would have a wide sphere of influence, provided the influence be for good. I desire to be loved, but am willing to be hated. A woman writes, If I realize my ideal, it would be nothing radically different. I would be a better wife and mother. I would be a tower of strength to be discouraged and suffering about me, and an inspiration to my friends to live a better life. The pleasure in doing and achieving is certainly one of the deepest instincts of human life. It is the same impulse that one sees in the play instincts of animals and in manifold activities of human beings, in which the activity is not directed toward a definite end, but is an outlet of the oversupply of stored-up energy. 
In the religious sphere, one finds the same instinct present, but expending itself in the direction of spiritual ends. Another motive somewhat like the last two is the impulse to know. A single sentence taken from each of several cases will be sufficient to illustrate this impulse. My ideal is to ascertain truth. I am striving to ground my faith on known laws. I would find all possible knowledge. A love of knowledge and a passionate zeal for right are central in my life. My highest purpose is to know nature, to be true to it, and to utilize it. Such instances occur most frequently between the years 20 and 25. It is natural that this should come at the most formative period of the rational life. In this respect, the present group bears a close similarity to the one just above. That was an expression of the pleasure of activity in a general way, while underneath the impulse to know is the pleasure in self-expression along the intellectual line. This differs from the last two in being egocentric. The last two expressed the expenditure of energy without being actuated by personal advantage, while the impulse to know represents the instinct to make conquest of the world and work it over as an individual possession. It is a psychical instinct which is analogous on the physiological side to the food-getting instinct. This ends that class of impulses which tend toward the enlargement of self. It is a fact of considerable significance that almost never is a distinctly egocentric impulse mentioned as a religious motive. The nearest approach to it is the pleasure in intellectual conquest of the world noted above. There are, to be sure, two or three solitary instances of impulses in which the advantage of the individual seems to be the spring of action. For example, a woman says, My one thought is to lead my children aright, and to be joined hereafter to those who have gone on before. There is but one other instance in which the desire for future happiness, a selfish impulse put off a little into the future, is acknowledged as a religious motive. One other person says, I would live so that people would think of me as having helped other people. The fewness of instances of this sort is so conspicuous that it emphasizes the fact that immediate personal ends are almost never present as a religious ideal. The counterpart of the general class of motives just described are those which tend to the curbing of the egoistic impulses. They imply that certain ones in the complex of self-assertive instincts have become disproportionate to the rest and demand being held in check. They show the necessity of lopping off and plucking out exaggerated and harmful tendencies of self-activity, which make the highest personal or social perfection possible. The person has gained the power of standing outside his life and judging it, of feeling within himself the strong racial impulses that are likely to rupture the unity of his own being. These motives are shown in the craving for meekness, patience, sobriety, justice, honesty, cheerfulness, personal purity and self-control. They are the ones most frequently mentioned. A number of them are shown together in the following instance of a man of 22 who says, My highest purpose is to overcome the imperfections of youth, to renounce worldly ambition. I have an ardent desire to be pure and to attain a common sense, patient and self-sacrificing life. I have now a chance to become rich, but it would mean spiritual death. The demand for curbing egoistic instincts in one way or another works itself over into the abstract ideal of self-abnegation. In its extreme form, this ideal is that expressed in the aesthetic severities that at one time were regarded as among the highest virtues. It is sometimes expressed in religious songs as, for example, O oh, to be nothing, nothing, only to lie at his feet. In the records before us, 
the ideal of self-abnegation is not found in any instance in which it is held entirely apart from that of self-perfection or of helpfulness to others the following extracts will illustrate female i would forget self entirely and spend my life in an unobtrusive way in order to make the world better female i would give up everything for others and not count anything dear for the sake of doing good male my highest purpose is the utter abandonment of self for the welfare of others the way in which this becomes an instinct and tends to establish itself as an abstract ideal is illustrated in the case of a woman who writes if i could only love my neighbor as myself but that is a long way off i fear this illustrates the impulse reduced to the second power there is not so much a desire to help others as there is a desire for the desire one source of this detached motive is doubtless to be found in the fact that society sets certain standards of conduct and so awakens the impulse in the individual to attain those standards before he has come upon them spontaneously himself this fact explains frequently recurring instances like the following if i could attain my ideal it would be to have a stronger desire to save souls for christ this leads us to consider the third large group of motives those in which the end of conduct is found in society and in the spiritual life of which the person is a part. The transition to this point of view shows itself in three groups of ideals. In the first place, there are the motives in which the social instinct is especially strong in which the end is the welfare of society rather than of the individual. They take shape in some form of helpfulness to others. Female, my ideal would be realized by a person who could be described by the one word, unselfish female i would bring great happiness to all with whom i am brought in contact female i would like to do favors for people even for those i do not care for male my highest desire is to make others happy by administering to their needs male my chief purpose is to work with god to bring it about that good may fall at last to all the same impulse in a more abstract and spiritualized form is expressed as the love and service of god this is shown in such sentences as these I would think of God and do good for His glory. My one purpose is to do what God desires. I have a deep desire to promote God's work. My ideal is to love God and serve Him better. These last two groups of motives are different from the self-perfection and self-expression ones in that they seek a more specific object, which object is found outside of immediate personal interests. Another impulse which likewise centers outside the limits of oneself is a desire for oneness with God. Female, I would grow nearer God by every thought and action. Female, my chief purpose is to find God in every part of his universe. Male, I would get more and more in harmony with God's laws. Male, my desire is to fulfill God's purpose in me as a child of his. Underlying this is the instinct for companionship. The same thing seems to underlie, although in an unexpressed form, the desire to help others. These all seem to have their birth in awakening of the social instinct. The relative prominence of some of these groups of motives is shown in Table 30. The numbers represent the percent of all the persons giving ideals who mention the various ones. Foremost in frequency of all the ideals is helpfulness to others. It is mentioned nearly twice as often as any other one. For the sake of comparison, we shall combine the motives helpfulness to others, oneness with God and service of God, and call them for convenience the altruistic group. We shall likewise combine those ideals which center about self-perfection, self-expression, and the desire for knowledge, 
and call them the self-enlargement group. It is evident that the former class somewhat exceeds the latter numerically. To the altruistic may fairly be added also those whose object is the curbing of self, since that is one of the clearest conditions of transferring the center of interest from the self to the life outside of it. The inference is according that the altruistic group of motives is a far more powerful factor in adult life than the ideal of self-enlargement which perhaps arose earlier in racial development. It would be unfair to say that the trend of life is simply away from the self-enlargement motives toward the altruistic. As a matter of fact, the evidence is pretty clear that both the self-enlargement and altruistic groups increase with years. If we separate the cases into age groups, as we have been accustomed to do heretofore, the frequency of the two classes of motives in the different years is shown in the following diagram. In the case of the women, there is clearly an advance with years in respect to both types of motives. They will appear to be supplementary ideals that run parallel. As the years advance, life is given over more and more, not only to doing more, but to being more. It increases in fullness itself and progressively enters into fuller and fuller relationships with the life outside of it. It is noticeable that both groups of motives decrease among the men with years. The same thing we found to be true in regard to the number of religious feelings expressed by them. The explanation of this seems to be that the ideals among the males are more keenly appreciated, and consequently more often recorded, during the earlier years than during the latter. During the twenties, when these instincts are being awakened to becoming worked over into the personality as part of it, they have greater worth to consciousness than after they have become habitual. That the increment is more constant among women is in line with what we have noticed repeatedly, that they develop later on the spiritual side than do men in those respects which concern their conscious activity, and that they are furthermore more constant and even in their line of development than men. The point to be noticed in this connection is that the altruistic motives are more frequent in each instance than are the self-enlargement motives. And if we should take the women as a type, both the groups of ideals increase constantly with years. There are some lines of evidence which seem conclusive that the trend of life is more and more towards altruism. In the record of childhood faults, records which are pretty fully given by the respondents, Selfishness is greater than any other item among the girls and stands second among the boys. Taking all the faults which may be classed as distinctly egoistic, such as jealousy, anger, covetousness, pride, stealing, and the like, we find them to foot up 70% among the girls and 72% among the boys of all the childhood faults mentioned. While these faults do not represent the religious caste of childhood, they nevertheless show these propensities which are strong and away from which growth tends. If we notice among the adult motives the prominence of those which center about the curbing of these same egocentric propensities, and that in only about 3.5% of the cases does self-interest in any form appear, if we notice further that the most prominent group of motives in adult life is the altruistic, it shows conclusively that from childhood to maturity the trend of life has been persistently away from the self-assertive, ecocentric instincts toward those which are society-centered and God-centered. Another evidence that this is the common trend is found in the frequency in individual records with which there is a definite struggle to attain life in which self-interest shall be swallowed up in the life of the whole. We find persons, especially in the younger years, hammering away in one way or another at the limits which shut the personality in and trying to break over them and escape. One young woman of 20 says, I would like to be good and true, 
through and through, with pure motives and thinking only of God and doing good for His glory. I wish I were not conceited. I should like never to think of self at all. I should like to be a foreign missionary. A woman of 74 who had been actuated during earlier life by the ideal self-perfection says of her latter development, which came when she was 43, I got out of the prison of self and took my stand in the objective universe. She further writes, speaking of her purposes, I would work out the welfare of the race, not with fear and trembling, but with serene hope and assurance. A woman of 22 says, I would receive every trouble, disappointment, pain, and temptation as a true opportunity and blessed occasion of dying to self and of entering into fuller fellowship with my self-denying, suffering Savior. I would recognize with delight all generous, beautiful actions and all good qualities, even of my bitterest opponents. This statement bears in it the evidence of a previous struggle to break down the limitations of self. Christ, to her mind, who clearly represents her ideal of attainment, is pictured as a self-denying, suffering Savior. In the desire to recognize the good qualities of her bitterest opponents, there is evidence that a barrier has been surmounted, and with no little difficulty, and that this has carried her life on to a considerable distance in the direction it has come. Sure enough, when we come to examine the case, we find it to be a person whose life during earlier years had been filled with intense struggles. She says, They grew out of selfishness and jealousy. Nature had favored my sisters with powers and attainment which excelled my own. This aroused in me most bitter feelings against God and His injustice to me. I became unruly and unlovable. I finally realized that I needed more than human help. It drew me to seek peace in the religious life. My real change of character began when I was 16. I took a class in Sunday school, sang in the choir, and set up ideals and made great struggles to live up to them. While there are many instances in the records before us of growth away from the self-perfection ideal towards the altruistic, there are no counts of a development in the opposite direction. It is safe to lay it down with a high degree of emphasis that in this growth from that class of motives, which center in self towards those which find their spring of action in the organized life outside of the self, we have one of the most fundamental lines of development. Usually we find them existing side by side, as in the following instance recorded by a woman of 38. I would be just myself, only with more patience, less selfishness, greater sense of God's friendliness to me, and arrive at the true union of the service of God and man. One sees in this case the fusion of the self-enlargement, self-abnegation, and altruistic motives. The ideal striven after is often found in a person whose life is admired. A girl writes, If I realize my ideal, I would be just like my mother, making everyone happy and doing all for the glory of God. The personality of Christ is frequently the embodiment of the ideal. Female, my highest aim is to follow Christ's teaching. Female, I am trying to follow Christ's life as nearly as I can in all its glorious self-abnegation, its wondrous purity and marvelous helpfulness. Male, I have no definite ideal aside from Christ. This type bears close kinship both to the self-expression group of motives and to those which strive after oneness with God. If we glance at the growth from childhood to youth, and on through maturity, we find in it a constant element running throughout, namely that factor which is the outgrowth of the deep-seated racial instinct of self-preservation. In childhood we find a propensity for self-assertion and self-indulgence. Among the childhood faults which were mentioned, these were frequent. 
Sexual temptations stand first among the evils from which the boys have grown and are striving still to be free themselves. Other forms of fault of this type are drinking, stubbornness, sauciness, lying, willfulness, revengefulness, and ill temper. These are all branches running out this way and that from the instincts of self-preservation, self-defense, and self-enlargement. In mature life we find these transformed and spiritualized into the impulse to be all that it is in one's power to become a spiritual being, to exercise one's fullest power, to conquer and work over into one's own life the most possible of the intellectual and spiritual worlds. We find that the impulses toward self-expression, thus spiritualized and transformed into a religious motive, not only persists through the rest of life, but even increases. This, then, seems to be one of the great streams of religious development, to give those deeper racial instincts which are consistent with self-development and the development of society the fullest possible expression and gradually to transform and enlarge them into spiritual forces. Running parallel with this is another line of growth which is likewise constant throughout life. Indeed, it is not only the accompaniment, but the very condition of the tendency we have just noticed. It is the exercise of the curbing or regulative impulse which keeps the egoistic instincts within their proper range and in harmonious relationships with each other. The fact that the egoistic impulses in childhood, when overemphasized, are described as faults, showing that they are that way from which growth tends. In most instances, the way in which and the time at which these are set aside is given by the respondents. The prevalence of the sense of sin during adolescence, occurring as it does in the majority of the cases, whether there has been actual waywardness or not, is doubtless a complex of the same impulse. All the little imperfections are asserting themselves and are felt as an organic tendency. Along with the dawning of rational and spiritual insight, one gains the power to look back on these and to feel a higher life, which can only be attained by the overcoming and crushing out of the complex of tendencies that make up the imperfect self. So that, in a very true sense, the whole adolescent stress may be viewed as a clash between the higher and lower selves in which the crisis is brought about through the activity of this curbing and regulative impulse. We have found that this continues throughout adult life and expresses itself in many virtues, such as patience, honesty, purity, self-control, and the like, each of which becomes transparent and shows beneath it some impulse trying to assert itself. During maturity, this motive becomes complex and refined and is shown in the abstract ideal of self-abnegation. Mr. Marshall, in his analysis of religion from the biological standpoint, arrives at a similar conclusion in regard to this element of religion. He says, The function of religion, which lies back of its ceremonial, is the suppression of the force of individualistic elemental impulses in favor of those which have higher significance. Again, he says, It will appear upon examination that the various groups of religious expression, which we shall examine, tend to produce a suppression of individualistic reaction and lead us to listen for the guiding voices within us. That direction of religious development first noticed above, which concerns the transition from the egoistic point of view to that which regards the life outside as the center of activity, is in reality simply a transition from youth to adult life. It represents the second great step in the line of growth from childhood towards maturity. In order to complete the picture, it should be borne in mind that the central fact which marked the transition from childhood was the birth of religious self-consciousness, 
a necessary step in the acquisition of the ability to refer spiritual experiences to the ego and to appreciate religion from within. Back of this was the life of childhood, in which the world was looked upon purely as an external fact. There was not yet the ability to appreciate the self as even a factor in its own experiences. This has become one of the most commonly recognized facts in regard to childhood experience. Miss Miles, for example, in her study of reminiscent experiences says, The predominant direction of the mind of the child is shown by the fact that 70% attention to the outside world and only 27 to self. Even when the child thinks of himself, he is more apt to regard himself as a victim of sensation than as an agent in bringing things to pass. In our study of the religion of childhood, it was evident that the child's religious experiences were viewed as objective. God was a being external to itself and above it, dwelling in the sky. The most pronounced feature of its religion was that which involved its relationship to this being, expressed usually in the most concrete and objective terms. The most marked and characteristic of adolescence, on the contrary, was the breaking away from religion as something external. New life wells up within the consciousness of the youth, and this either surges above the threshold of consciousness as a clearly appreciated spiritual product or makes itself felt as opposing currents of life in the undefined sphere of feeling. Out of it all is born the clear consciousness of a self, which is an organ for the expression of spiritual life. And now comes the third step, which we have already noticed, in which the person's consciousness of the world order is aroused, and he appreciates the relationships existing between part and part, feels that his own personality is only a small fraction of the larger life. He transfers the center of his activity to the life of the whole. His most prominent motive is to live in the lives of other persons and to lose his life in love and service, in unison with God. There are, consequently, in this aspect of religious growth, three great steps in development. First, that in which religion is viewed externally. Second, that in which the center of activity is one's own personality. And thirdly, that in which the center of activity again becomes objective. The growing individual tends to obtain a knowledge of himself as a spiritual personality and to gain control of himself as a unit in society and then to give himself back again as an organic part of the world life. End of chapter 27